Welcome to the Supergirl Supercast, part of the incomparable network of shows. This week, we're here to talk about Supergirl Season 3, Episode 3, uh, which is titled Far From the Tree. Uh, on hosting duties today for my first episode this season, I'm Michael Gabriel. I'm David Schaub. And I'm Dan Drush. Uh, before we get started with our recap, I would like to assure listeners that we're cognizant of the fact that it's three men talking this week. Uh, unfortunately, none of the women in our show's roster had any recording time available for this episode. So we'll do our best to do them justice today. But uh, we would encourage any female listeners who would be interested in joining our cast to get in touch. Uh, so if you are interested, you can reach out to me on Twitter at uh, A-U-H-I-M. That not really doesn't have a proper pronunciation, so I'll spell that again. It's A-U-H-I-M. Uh, David, you can be reached on Twitter as well. You can reach me at David P. Schaub. David P-S-C-H-A-U-B. And uh, frequent panelist and host of this show, Trish Matson, can also be reached on Twitter at P.E. Matson, which is P-E-M-A-T-S-O-N. If you contact one of us, we'll be glad to talk about getting you involved. So uh, on that note, David, you have a recap for us. Here's the recap. A-plot. Alex and Maggie have a bridal shower. Maggie bravely invites her homophobic parents. Her father comes, but can't see, see past his own biases. But Maggie gains closure by telling him that she doesn't need him to. B-plot. John and Kara go to Mars and meet John's father and the White Martian Resistance. With Kara's help, John's father can see past the walls he's raised to see his son. Together with Britney Spears, they stop the bad White Martians from getting the superweapon. They send it back to Earth where it will be safe. Great, thank you. Uh, I totally started laughing behind my mute uh, thing when you uh, mentioned Britney Spears, so uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. Definitely. Britney Spears really is a dominant power in battle. It's true. It's true. Uh, so this episode, as you pointed out, was really cleanly separated between two storylines with some pretty th strong thematic links, which I'm sure we'll get to. So we have the Bridal Shower Maggie storyline and the Mars storyline. Uh, today, we're going to mostly address those one at a time, starting with Maggie's story. Uh, and I'd like to kick the conversation off at the very beginning of the episode, right before our characters separate for the duration, because I think it actually sets up a lot of talking points for us. So yeah, there's that opening scene with the bridal shower being set up. And uh, I guess for me, the, the thing that really stuck out to me here is uh, when John shows up at the door, because we had seen in the previous episode that Magan wanted him at Mars, uh, and Kara doesn't look through the door to see if it's John instead of Eliza. She just kind of assumes. But then they have a quick conversation between the three, you know, the three people here. We have Alex, Kara, and John. And it's actually a really pleasantly healthy and quick conversation where John at first fights Kara going with him, but then they convince him as like, hey, you would do this for us too. And that's it. And I think that there's a lot of similarly healthy conversations in this episode. We'll get through them as we go, but I would agree that there's a lot of tight conversation and a lot of things, the things that have need have lanterns hung on them, those lanterns are there and they say it really well. I really liked in that scene where uh, Alex says, if she thought she could survive Mars, she'd go too. And, and, and it... It sort of came off realistic, and I believed it. Yeah, and I really liked the fact that it, there wasn't a lot of, you know, unnecessary drama just for the sake of, like, creating conflict. It was, you know, it started off, oh, no, 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 don't do that. But then they very quickly got to the point of, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that continues through Maggie's story, which we're on right away. So uh, we get, I think the, the next beat on this is really that... Uh, we have the kind of dinner area where it's Maggie, Alex, and Eliza talking, and that's when we first really hear details of Maggie's backstory. Because before, like Alex, we'd only heard a little bit of it. 
And the delivery of it really amazed me. That was that was just they they wanted to be heart wrenching, and boy did they succeed at making it heart wrenching. I was amazed at uh, uh, Maggie's presentation of that, and and just to show us just how awesome Alex's mum is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This and several other parts on my first watch definitely produced at least a little bit in the the bleary-eyedness, but uh, uh, it kind of didn't really hit me as hard the second time, and I was just noting that, you know, delivery was strong. Uh, As you said, it was really believable. So on this, though, on this note, so we have... uh, she she actually mentioned so we have a further conversation between Maggie and uh, and Alex about this later and Maggie kind of defends her father at first is like you know I know how it sounds but he was the best father until that moment and as far as my impression goes this is kind of how a lot of people's experiences go uh, where it's, you know people defend family and friends against accusations of prejudice because you know they can think of many examples when people were great or loving but like just because people are loving in particular environments doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't prejudiced in some way or another. And uh, so it's almost like Maggie is kind of reducing the impact that this really did have on her. Context is everything. And and I think that that, that, that shows in that case. The part that I truly loved in the, in the scene as Maggie and Alex continued the conversation where Maggie basically is being pushed a bit by Alex and responds that, I love you, but please drop it. And Alex says, okay. And this felt like also a huge step up in um, how they're sort of presenting Alex as being in a new relationship that Alex is learning and didn't keep pushing. And I was briefly worried, is Alex going to try and engineer something here? And I was very happy they didn't go there. Whereas giving us the scene where Maggie does this amazingly brave thing of actually calling her parents. Yeah, there were a lot of times during this episode where like I got very, very worried that, oh, are they going to go down this road in the relationship parts and because you know in past seasons they did go down those roads and it got pretty messy but they were very very restrained this episode yes absolutely uh and again i mean you know david you called out specifically that argument and it was really a great situation i I was kind of surprised very pleasantly so when alex just sort of let it drop in a way that was again healthy um, as a lot of these conversations went um and kind of the next beat on this is the father arriving because I I guess he agreed to to come and uh, the mother didn't come and we don't really know what's going on there, but uh, Maggie sort of dismisses it. Uh, And one of the things that really hit me off the bat was this actor does an amazing job of appearing extremely internally conflicted. Like, uh, you know, we can get, we can get talking about how he should be able to handle the internal conflict much better, but it feels the way a lot of real people struggle with internal conflict that they should be able to handle uh, versus kind of manufactured internal conflict like TV often has. So it, it felt really genuine, just the looks on his face and the way he cared himself. Yeah, I, I recognized the actor at first. And I was like, oh, what is he in? And then I looked it up. He's uh, Tony Alameda in 24. And so he has some experience of that like internal conflict from some of the, uh, some of the episodes of 24 from years ago. But the main thing I feel this scene does is it gives us the first attempt where they're humanizing him. Like this is, we've heard something bad about this person. Now we're going to show you that he does care. He does follow her. And, and there's this attempt to, to, to humanize and show that this is a person before things maybe get worse. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, just the brief conversation about him following her cases and clearly showing that he cares that much. And her kind of showing the appreciation, like he, she actually used an example of a thing that he used to say that he was surprised she remembered. And it's like, hey, they're connecting. You know, it almost gives you the sense of 
potential optimism that this might work okay because they both clearly carry about each other or care about each other and have some fond memories of one another. Um, and then things change a little bit at the party. They show that he does care and has the picture and brings it up, brings it out. But this is, of course, where the reality um, apparently is too much for him and he can't cope and he runs. Uh, yeah, I'm, I was uh, a little interested with how they portrayed things because at first he did seem pretty impressed with Alex when he found out that she was a federal agent. Maybe I'm reading too much into that, but um, but it seemed like he was impressed. Uh, and of course, though, he runs specifically when they kiss. And it's sort of a, to me, it seemed like they were treading this line where they're giving him the possibilities. Like, is he actually, does he know that he's running out because she's gay or is the backstory in his head the one that he thinks is genuine? Like the one that he actually explains afterwards, is that sort of what's actually going on? Or is it really just, you know, really just a sort of prejudice against people who are gay and he's justifying it, you know? Yeah, to me, his explanation uh, when they were out in the alley was basically him saying, it's okay that I'm a homophobe because other people are racist. I wouldn't go quite that far. I, I, I think he's saying, I mean... What he is saying from my perspective and what I found was interesting about it is they didn't bring it on as uh, more particularly as an obvious moral issue or as a religious issue. And that seems a bit strange because they actually presented that it's a function of peer pressure and social norms. And he's basically saying, and I think it, it's the same in both cases, he is saying that the norm of what he had to do and how he had to act to be respected doesn't allow this. And, and that's what got it. And it's, it's, it was an interesting choice. I don't know if I quite bought it, but I can't get my head inside this person's head. So <laughs> there's that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's sort of a, is it really a concern with sort of a, well, hey, I did this to change myself so that I could fit in with this society and you're not doing the same thing. You're doing the opposite thing, which of course indicates some kind of misunderstanding or misalignment of, you know, kind of what the differences there are because it goes to that whole, is this a choice thing where it's not for Maggie. Um, but, uh, and then it's sort of a, does this become a storyline that continues after this episode, which we'll get to the ending in a bit, but uh, but there's sort of the, does this become a story about him realizing it's not his responsibility to make sure that she's okay in every context, right? Because if this is genuinely disappointment that root, root or, excuse me, that roots itself in the fact that he puts so much work into his family being able to live in this society, uh, how does that, and this is kind of being one of the few things that sort of flies in the face of it, that like he couldn't do anything to help about this. So he, just, I guess in a way, chooses to be offended by it rather than just accepting that he can't handle everything. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting, if this becomes a recurring thing that is addressed throughout the season, I, I just don't know how they're going to go at it. I think it all comes down to the one line, which is, why was he doing this? And the answer and his statement is, so that you would never face that hatred. And, and that line, of course, is just full of hate. And it, it, it's just so antithetical to, antithetical to what he's trying to communicate. It's like he's, that's how far lost he is in that state where he would make that statement, which is in itself so hateful. Um, I don't know if he understands it, and I, I think they wanted to show there's there's two fathers in this episode, and one father is not ready. 
So one thing I found interesting was um, when Maggie's father came in, uh, Alex greeted him as Mr. Rodas, but uh, Maggie goes by Maggie Sawyer. I don't know if we've ever gotten an explanation of, you know, why is her last name different from her father's? Like, she went and lived with her aunt after she got kicked out. Was, you know, her aunt a Sawyer? Or I was just, uh, thought that was kind of an interesting point that they brought up. It definitely feels like we'll have to find out at some point more family background. Like, why was it not that big a concern for Maggie when her mom had some kind of issue with coming? Because uh, that also really stuck with me, especially the second time through the episode. It feels to me like they're likely to bring back this character, and maybe we'll see more in that regard. But yeah, the, the difference of the name was it was definitely notable when I looked through the cast listing. So, I mean, at the end of this conversation that was pretty intense, Ma- you know, Maggie kind of tearfully telling her dad that I don't need you and I needed you to come in order for me to learn that. So she, he leaves and... Um, I definitely was in tears the first time that went through. But then this storyline concludes with her going back to Alex and them sort of talking about this. Alex saying that she's glad she found closure. And then they're still having the kids conversation that, you know, about whether or not they want to have children. And wow, it really feels like it's late in the relationship to be kind of starting this conversation for real. Yeah, I had that exact note. I was like, Alex, talking about kids is something you do before you propose. Uh, but there's a lot of things that Alex has had to figure out over the course of this relationship so far. So, uh, The scariest yeah. part I have in that conversation is they start the conversation, and Alex has started the conversation multiple times, and the end of the conversation is always her saying it's okay and saying what she thinks Maggie wants to hear. And and that that's still the point where there's there's a problem there, not just the difference of kids, but just that Alex isn't quite being communicative and honest um and that that that's not a good sign yeah i feel like there's gonna there's gonna be a lot of resentment that builds up in that relationship if it keeps going with that uh style of communication yeah totally it's there's a a lack of kind of self-honesty if alex even realizes how disappointed she is in things because i mean you think about what maggie specifically said uh with the it's like well you know you're all i need is that the same for you and it that doesn't really set alex up to respond in a in a way that's productive because you know she's like well i presumably in her head she's like well yes but also this is a thing i want and she probably just really hasn't come to terms with that and how to advocate for herself and sort of come to terms with what she really needs in a relationship and what she just wants but is okay without uh, i think that's all we have for this particular storyline before we sort of tie the two together uh do either of you have i know they Probably doesn't have any direct connection, but I actually wanted to make a set location uh, note regarding this plot line. The location in the park where Maggie and her father have that that last sort of tear-filled conversation um, is actually a monument called the Marker of Change in Vancouver. I just wanted to note that the, the monument names the 14 women murdered in 1989 at L'École Polytechnique of the University of Montreal in Quebec, and it has the dedication inscribed on seven languages in the memory and in grief for all women murdered by men, for women of all countries, all classes, all ages, all colors. Wow, that is a bit rough. It's a rough monument, but that is the, the monument where they're actually they're, they shoot that location. Uh, it does tie in with a small note that I have um, when I mentioned earlier that there were a lot of healthy conversations in this episode. It's like it's true of conversations between women and women, between men and women. Although, 
I mean, I guess early on there was a healthy conversation between Maggie and her dad and then uh, and then between Martian men. So like lots of regardless of gender, lots of healthy conversations, which is not a thing that we get enough of in television. And uh, so I guess maybe that's, you know, improved relationships over what the monument is there for. One can hope. Cool. Well, let's uh, dive into the Mars storyline. So uh, I, things really kick off with that, with what I thought thought was a really satisfying uh, thing of Kara uh, just kind of calling out that the transmat and asking why they can't use it. And John's saying like, oh, we can't because we don't have a receiver at the other side. So it sort of calls out this thing that they've been able to use before that would solve the situation and sets them up for the next scene, which is pretty cool. And just further proves that it is a, actually just a Stargate. I think it, the, one of the writers may have been also the ones that did some of the Daxamite invasion, which uh, may have helped that connection. Though it does still give us the question of where exactly was on the other side of the Daxamite fleet? We have no idea. Who knows? One day we'll find out, maybe, hopefully. Or maybe not. But we get to go to a, uh, I guess, I don't know if it would be more conventional or less conventional uh, mode of travel, but it's a cool one. I think it's a cooler one, so. It's a real convertible. <laughs> it's quite the sight gag, and I think the payoff later is worth it, though it does seem a little silly and the CGI seems a little weak, but they're definitely having fun. Uh, when John makes the line, when uh, when Kara looks at it and he says, I come from a planet of shapeshifters, why shouldn't our technology shapeshift too? <laughs> I'm not really sure that logically follows. <laughs> like... <laughs> It's comic book logic. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I, I enjoy it nonetheless. Um, I also love how when they landed on Mars, there was an obligatory rover shot because where else could they possibly land I on Mars? I believe it's supposed to look like the Curiosity Mars rover. I don't exactly know what smashed it up. Maybe a Martian got it, went out on the surface and hit it with a stick. I don't quite understand why that. There's also not an American flag flying above it because you can't fly a flag on Mars because there's not enough air. But what do you do? <laughs> it's a nice to see a rover. I feel like they're like, you won't really understand if this is Mars unless we show you that there's this human artifact here that you guys, I guess, know through pop culture. I don't know. It's a very odd thing. Um, so in the next step, though, uh, I remember when I, I still think it's a little bit weird how the Martians keep taking human forms, especially on Mars. Uh, I mean, clearly it's to reduce the CG budget, but... But man, like... But they put a lantern on it. They put a beautiful lantern on it. Oh, yeah. It is the custom of my people to take the shape of our guests. That is just... Because that saves on the CGI That is such a brilliant little line. Let's let's put a lantern on it and just run with it. And at that point, ah, whatever. (laughs) So on that note, though, uh, I mean, I really appreciate that the Martians are portrayed by black actors because it's kind of an easy way to get some added diversity into the cast. But uh, it is a little odd that every single one of them is when presumably the only reason John Jones decided uh, like he's black because Hank Henshaw is and that's the human he was taking on uh, the image of, whereas everyone else is, I guess, generating their own human image. So it's a little bit of a weird in-universe thing that I don't want to poke too hard at. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just take it for what it is. But uh, I expect someone in the production staff has probably answered that somewhere, but I do not know what the answer is. It's an interesting question. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they it, it's a little bit odd, uh, too. We, we run into one of the TV tropes, I guess media tropes, where uh, we find out that there's another Green Martian survivor, and it turns out that it's John's father. So somehow the only two surviving Green Martians are related to one another. It is. Because this is TV. Conservation of characters. And, uh, and John is also unfamiliar with the fact that basically any legend or myth a character has heard of before is inevitably true. So the staff of Haran is obviously a real thing, despite his 
protestations. I kind of like that exposition dump. It, it sort of felt like two people who share a mythology and a religious background, and they, and they can sort of bounce the story between them. And, and actually, as as a exposition dump into a maybe real, maybe not real mythology for the first white Martians, I, I thought it played well. Yeah, it totally did. And when we get to that, because that conversation is a little bit later, I actually have a couple of points on why I thought it was especially convincing. But uh but I guess before we really meet the dad, we uh, we have a lot of the conversations between John and the Martians he hasn't met before. Um, so what did you two think about the interactions at first between John and Talal, who's like that young, desperate resistance fighter? The, yeah. Uh, well, who, who was he going to betray? That was that was the only question I had. Yeah. Yeah. When he first came out, the first thought I had was, wow, what a jerk. Yeah. I, and the second thought was, oh, when he's in human form, he walks really funny. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the first time I thought the same thing. The second time I realized, you know, depending on how young he is, because he could be young compared to us or just young compared to Martians, you know, but, uh, but I kind of get the, I mean, it sort of makes sense. His interactions with John, like he is a young, rash, desperate resistance fighter and John has seen a whole lot of things. So I kind of get how they, uh, how they go back and forth a bit. I, I suppose it worked better for me on the second viewing because I know how things turned out later. Uh, I also appreciated that, again, just people doubting John, because they don't have any of the experience that we do, right? Like, Kara's the only person up there who knows who he is, and Magan. Like, they're the only ones who really know how reliable and how strong he is. So there isn't really any reason that the Resistance or that uh, John's dad should have any reason to trust him at first. My main concern was whether or not he would actually betray the Resistance to the other White Martians, and at least they didn't go down that path. And and, and on the second viewing, I, I generally liked it more, though his turn at the end still felt a little abrupt. Oh, right there with you. Yeah. One other thing, like, one of the reasons I thought, like, oh, this guy's actually bad is, like, you know, midway through, he's like, oh, let's do this whatever um, ritual thing is to extract the information out of... Uh, John's father, and it was like, okay, well, how are you any better than the other white Martians you're fighting against? Yeah, and that leads to the conversation David was alluding to, the kind of turnabout later. Uh, it really feels like, and we'll get to this, but it feels like there's yeah. a scene missing in his arc. So uh, it's like the, the conversation that was necessary was had, but he wasn't in the room when that conversation was had. So I'm a, a little confused on that, but you know, I'm sure something just hit the cutting room floor. Uh, I also really enjoyed how much how discouraged John was after his first conversation because uh, essentially something that the father said. I'm mean, clearly his dad was right to doubt that. I mean, how ridiculous is the idea that his son would be alive after all this time? So, uh, doubting would be the obvious thing, and so of course he's going to latch on to any objection he has. And so essentially to call John without realizing it a coward for turning for running away uh, was a really good way of getting John to feel dispirited in a way that felt genuine to me. Uh, and it also gave Kara the opportunity to give a, a pep talk that like, she's actually in a position to have, where a lot of the time these pep talks don't really make sense coming from the character there. But she's like, no, I mean, I know who you are. I know who you've been. We just need to show your dad who you really are, who he hasn't seen in all this time. This sort of leads to the uh, pep talk that as, after they escape there and go to their old home, I think it's more interesting regarding Kara's pep talk to the father. And that, that, that one, I think, is sort of the, the turning point of which, where Kara actually sort of proves her value in the situation is she can be appropriate third party who is not a Martian. Though it does lead to some very interesting questions regarding how do people know about Kryptonians everywhere? 
Yeah, the other thing I thought was, how did he know that Krypton was destroyed? He's been in captivity for 200 years. Krypton blew up like 30 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot that doesn't really make sense in terms of the like interstellar scheme of things. Because as, I mean, as you said, everybody seems to know about Krypton. And it's just, why... I don't know, then they should either all be like afraid of Kara like right away or I don't know, be better at fighting them. I feel like one or the other because we can't be the only planet with a yellow sun. Yeah. And the other thing is when they got back to Earth and like Kara flies off and John's dad is like, can everyone on this planet do that? He's like, he knows that she's Kryptonian, not an Earthling. And also John can do that. So I'm a little confused by that, too. Can all Martians fly? I don't know, but presumably at least green Martians can, because John can. I mean, I, I, I feel like it must not be an extra ability he has over other green Martians, right? Well, we have another one around, so maybe we'll find out. Yeah. One thing I did find interesting in the fight scene was I noticed, like, the rest of the resistance fighters were all in their white Martian form, but Megan chose to be a green Martian during the fight. Yeah, they did bring a bit of the identity thing in there, too, because in the conversation, and this is related, but... In the second conversation, when uh, they actually, when John introduces himself to his dad again after the, his first failed attempt, and this is after Kara's pep talk saying like, hey, you need to know, like, show him who you really are, then he goes as a human. And so it's like, okay, he identifies in that form now, and maybe that's the same thing that's going on with Magan here, is like, she identifies with the Green Martians that she's, you know, kind of fighting to avenge or protect or and, and so on. Can't tell if it's just a conservation of actors or makeup or something that is just a function of a TV trope. I mean, Odo always picked the same form. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I guess we get through things. We get the really touching scene. Finally, after Kara convinces the dad to let his guard down, which presumably is like a really, really dangerous thing because he's fought for, you know, hundreds of years under torture and presumably opening his mind up even a little bit would be an opening for torture. But, uh, but she lets convinces him, and then they get to share this really touching memory of uh, John's birthday. And it does lead to the incredibly important question, which doesn't matter to the plot at all. Why can Kara see it? I thought the exact same thing. Like, John's <laughs> holding his too. hand to his, his father's head to share the memory, but Kara's just standing there, oh, your kids are beautiful. Wait, how are you seeing this? Yeah, I absolutely, uh, my like, in my notes, I'm like, how... What what is going on? Why they why do they have to touch each other when they don't have to touch Kara? But they're the ones who are psychic. I'm very confused. So yeah, that whole thing goes off. Then they uh, and it's perfectly timed because because John's like it's okay, we have time, and they're like no, we don't after all because things are coming to a head right now, of course. Uh, and so then we realize that Britney Spears is the tool of heroism. It is such a silly scene, and I just kind of love it. <laughs> Yeah, this you will hear no disagreement from me. This episode was very, very on the serious side for almost all of it. This was a nice li little bit of levity, and to follow the Britney Spears it really was. music with a Bugs Bunny joke. <laughs> I always turn right at Albuquerque. Yes, so good. I, I was definitely channeling some channeling some middle school me uh, back with because that was that was Britney Spears' very first song. So really weird. Yeah, so I'm also confused, though, in this case, like, what the staff actually does, because the White Martians are sort of chanting around it to make it, like, a psychic weapon, but then at the end of the fight, Kara uses it as an energy weapon, so, I don't know, I guess it's more of a, it becomes a sort of a Chekhov staff thing that they can use however they want later on in the in the series. It's, it's the magical MacGuffin. It really is. I, I really would 
would like at least some moderate explanation as to why the White Martians didn't just pick it up. Yeah, I, I was initially at the very beginning when she used it and people looked at her, I thought they were going to think like, oh, wow, it's not even supposed to do that much. Is this special for Kara? And that, that like they give it to her for that reason. But apparently not. I, I was thinking the exact same thing when they were like, oh, you should use this. I'm like, is that because she's special and could use it really well or something? But no, it was just, oh, this is too powerful. Neither of us should have, like, we shouldn't have it to fight the White Martians because it's too powerful. This is the point where Talal's character makes this massive shift in wisdom, which doesn't seem, as you said, it feels like there's a scene missing for him to get to that point. Right. Like, if he had been present when uh, John's dad didn't believe it was John, and so they were giving us that exposition on the, you know, religious history of the races and where the powers come from, uh, which... As you said, David, earlier, like that made a lot of sense because, well, if he doesn't believe he's actually talking to a green Martian, then he has a reason to explain this thing. Because, but then it turns out John does know. And so he can have the conversation back and forth instead of it just being a long monologue. But in that, he tells us about the, you know, the shame that the gods had about uh, how the staff was used. And but the White Martians weren't around to hear that, to like make have that be a thing to change their decisions based on what happened with the weapon. So it's very odd. Uh, and it really feels like all they needed to do was have Talal present during that conversation, just listening, if nothing else. And that would have done it for me. But still, I mean, it's fine in the end. It's overall, I think that the, the arc made sense. I mean, do you guys feel that way about this sort of story arc in terms of how things go and we get the two green Martians to go back to Earth? It all made sense. I'm a little concerned when historically the show has been very inconsistent with how powerful Kara is. And in this episode, it feels like there's kind of inconsistent regarding how powerful the White Martians are. It was uh, a lot of White Martians and good guys in Kara seem to make relatively short work of them. I don't know, maybe they should have just had fewer bad White Martians or something. But as a storyline goes, it, it, it held together. I liked it. Yeah, because I, I recall, like, to your point, I recall last season, like the white Martians being way more powerful than the green Martians, like just in one-on-one -on -one combat. I think, I think I recall that too. And I think I recall us being really surprised at how evenly matched they were to Kara. Cause it feels like, well, Kryptonians should be a lot more special than that because there's two of them. Maybe it's a reasonable correction, but you know, maybe so. Uh, I also, this is completely unrelated to actual content, but it's a funny thing I just noticed in my notes. So uh, John's father, I keep I kept writing as Papa Jones, but because I spelled it the way that they, you know, spell it in the comics, I keep reading it now Papa John's in my in my head, and I just you know makes me want pizza. That's <laughs> awesome. So one other thing that popped up into my mind at the end of this, when like you know uh, John and his father are going, they're like, oh, where are we going? Home. I'm like, wait, where does John live? Does he just like have an apartment in National City? I, see, I was thinking that too. Doesn't he live in the DEO? Like they say, what are we going to do now? We're going to go, we go home, father, we go home. It's like, so is he going to work for the DEO and live in the DEO? Because I'm, I feel like that's the only place we've ever seen John that feels like home. Maybe. Or maybe it's like what all elementary school children think of their teachers and they just live at the school. Maybe this is the opportunity for them to get a home because now John feels like he has a bit of home with him and so he can make a new home. Here we go. So there's some like headcanon to use. Um, he's been un unable to create a new actual home residence because of his thoughts on his old home or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. <laughs> As MacGuffin goes, so far this season, we've been introduced to amazingly powerful psychic staff of 
Destruction, and a character called Psy, who's a psionic. And I wonder if those two are going to meet at some point. Yeah, um, and I guess the last point I had about this particular thing is when when the dad lands, I love that the thing he's fascinated with is a small, tiny, weak plant that he just plucks out of the ground, which I think makes total sense. The line in my notes is, the first thing John's father does, pull up and kills a plant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's both storyline. So uh, there are some pretty clear thematic things to tie between the two. Uh, Dan, you want to kind of start tying some things together for us? Yeah, I think, I mean, just state the obvious, this is really about uh, relationships with fathers. It's In one case, we've got, you know, but actually, in both cases, we've got them. They haven't seen their fathers in a very, very long time, and they have to kind of reconcile why they haven't seen each other. You know, in John's case, it ends up being a happy reunion. But in Maggie's case, it's kind of, while it's not necessarily a happy thing, it allows Maggie to kind of move on from all the uh, bad feelings that she's had over the past, you know, 20 years or yeah, so. It seemed to me that the real difference between them is that, in the Mars storyline, John is full of shame, uh, whereas his father does not feel that about him. Maggie doesn't feel shame for who she is, and at least she may have be, have a little bit, but that closure allows her to get over that. But her father does feel shame towards her. Clearly, that difference mattered in this case. Yeah, and uh, there's, of course, the clear delineation between the one that reconciles well versus the one that doesn't. Uh, you know, which ones were separation by choice or which one was a separation by choice and which one wasn't, you know? And it's the, well, it in the end, the the choice to separate was Maggie's father's choice and the essentially the choice to not reconcile well was also his choice in this situation versus, you know, and John's father, it was really just, you know, tragedy that separated them and it was the realization that uh, the tragedy is behind them to kind of move forward, which is, you know, pretty, both of these relationships felt pretty real uh, versus, you know, I, I guess I've never actually seen one similar to John's. I mean, even, you know, human ones, I've never kind of seen one where somebody thought their child was dead and then they weren't. But uh, I suppose it's probably most like, you know, if somebody's child has a really severe illness that they might not get through and then they do kind of like a reconciling the like, oh, we're not actually going to be gone forever after all. But Maggie's relationship seems a lot, I know a lot of people with similar relationships to that, and that felt pretty, pretty real. I think they did a really good job of taking these two very different storylines and sort of giving them a somewhat similar thematic feel through it and uh, two different conclusions. And I, I really like this episode. This may actually be my favorite of the season so far. Uh, I agree. I really, really feel positively about it. I did feel positively about it first time, and I exactly. liked it more the second time. So I, I would say this is my favorite so far of these yeah. three episodes. This has been very good. Uh, cool. Well, do either of you have any any more notes? I mean, I, I guess which things... What things in this episode do we expect to be followed up? I, I'm thinking that the staff is going to probably play a part later in the season. Yeah, I would agree on that. I think the staff is being kept safe on Earth. <laughs> That's also putting a bit of a lantern that nothing is safe on Earth. Exactly. Quote, unquote, so I safe. That'll be back. And I do hope that we do see her father at some point, though it's not, I don't think, necessary. It would be nice to see there actually was progress there. Yeah. Uh, do you think, do you two, I think, will ever actually see or not ever, but soon see progression in the John McGon relationship. Cause they even say like, we'll see you soon. And I hope that's true. And uh, McGon says that we're closer than we ever have been to winning this war, which my impression was not that they were ever actually close at all. So 
do we think that this is going to eventually spill over to Earth, or is this a thing that they'll just have in the background and it'll continue next season? What do you think? I'm wondering if we're going to see, you know, a bigger Mars-centric story later this season dealing with kind of the War of the White Martians. Because I'd I'd like to see that progress some and not just be kind of standing out there as a way to just get John off the planet for a while. Yeah, I agree, too. It would be a little uncomfortable for me to wait basically all season until we revisit Mars next season again. I, it would be nice to see some progression in that war. The reality is I don't expect we'll see McGann in many episodes, though, but I, almost certainly we will see her in more. Yeah, I, I mean, I do suppose they need reasons to not have her be a season regular unless they're ready to sign her on as a season regular. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Also, speaking of season regulars, it was interesting. We didn't have uh, any... James Olsen, any uh, Lena Luther, or any Win. We had a few episode. lines from James and Win at the party, but not very many. But no, we had no Lena, no Morgan, as I expect we'll see him again, and also no Sam and Ruby. So there, there, there was a lot of characters we didn't get to see, but it gave us a lot of focus on a smaller number of characters. I think that may have something to do with how much we liked this episode, is that it was two straightforward storylines that interleaved well, and there just wasn't a lot to get lost in, you know, and uh, whereas yeah. sometimes some episodes, especially in other of the DC TV shows, but even in this one, sometimes we can get a little lost with just so much going on. Yeah, I think last season it suffered a lot with uh, the whole Guardian story arc and that kind of distracting from everything else that was going on. Hopefully this episode and uh, the, the even the, the previous two will show that this season is going to come together and be tighter than last season. I don't know if there is much of a change as a function of the uh, showrunners changing the season. But so far, I've been pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about this season so far and this episode as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I do miss, though, from last season, I miss Monel. He had some great one-liners. He really did. I, I, I would not have guessed, you know, back when he was introduced that I would miss him, but I do. <laughs> all right, well, on that note, do either of you have anything I'm else to done. add about this particular episode? I'm all done. Uh, me too. All right, great. Well, uh, so before or as we close out, I'd like to thank both of you for joining me today. So, David, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Dan, thank you, too. Thanks. It's been fun. Uh, Thanks to all of our listeners for listening. And as always, thanks to our fantastic man behind the curtain, Seth Heasley, for editing the show. For any listeners, if you have listener feedback or otherwise want to get in touch, please feel free to give us a shout out in either the Incomparable Facebook group or if you're a paid Incomparable member in the members only Slack. We would love to hear from you. Uh, All right. Thank you. Tune in next week. Thank you.